the prime obligation of every human being is to speak out against injustice. We are our brother's keeper. You're listening to The Keeper, brought to you by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. I'm Katrina Lantos-Sweat. Recently, I had the opportunity to speak with two men who are among the human rights leaders that I admire most, Mr. Jared Genser and Dr. Yang Zhan Li. Jared is the founder of Freedom Now, an independent non-governmental organization that works to free prisoners of conscience worldwide. He is often referred to in the media as the extractor for his work as a leading human rights lawyer on behalf of prisoners of conscience. Dr. Yang Zhan Li, founder of Initiatives for China, is a Chinese dissident who was detained and imprisoned by the Chinese government in the early 2000s for his activism. I'm glad you've joined us for our conversation, dealing with everything from how these two men became human rights activists to the shameful death of Nobel laureate Liu Xiaobo in Chinese custody. Jared and Yang Zhanli don't mince their words when it comes to talking about the Chinese government's moral bankruptcy, the underlying political weakness that the regime is desperate to hide, and even Zhanli's bold prediction of the Chinese regime's inevitable end. by asking each of you how you came to this path of being human rights defenders. Well, thanks, uh, Katrina. Great to be here with you and, and obviously with Yang Li as well. Actually, my, my path to become a human rights lawyer traces right back to our fellow guest, uh, Yang Li, and to the time that we spent at the Kennedy School some 20 years ago. Uh, in the fall of 1997, the then president of China, Zhang Zemin, announced he was going to be coming to speak at Harvard. And... That itself was not bothersome to me, but I quickly learned that there were going to be no questions asked of him and that no protesters would be allowed on campus. And that really shocked me and persuaded me to come to the organizational meeting to help organize the protests. And I met Yang Li at the organizational meeting along with some other really extraordinary Chinese dissidents. And we helped turn out the largest protest at Harvard since the Vietnam War against Jiang Zemin. I was the kind of token white guy speaking at the uh, rally uh, because I played a leading role organizing everything. And when it was over, I was really blown away by the people that I had met. I was convinced as well that what we had done had a lot of impacts highlighting what China was doing outside of China, but no impact inside of China. And so this is what then persuaded me to go on to become a human rights lawyer. And I've had a really exciting career where I've had the honor and responsibility of representing some of the most persecuted people in the world, having worked with now uh, four different Nobel Peace Prize laureates, among others. And we have about 35, uh, 30, 35 active cases. Among the people you have represented, as you've said, a number of Nobel laureates, Aung San Suu Kyi, Václav Havel, Elie Wiesel, and of course, which we're going to talk about in a little while, um, Liu Xiaobo. Dr. Uh, Yang Zhanli, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yes, uh, Katrina, Jared, it's a such an uh, honor and a pleasure being with you. Very briefly, I grew up in the Cultural Revolution, during which millions were killed. I, with my own eyes, saw many, many killings. Killing, being killed, is a routine during the 10 years. So early on, I was disenchanted with this system. When 
Mao Zedong died. His death brought to the end of the Cultural Revolution. China opened up for economic reform. The young student, high school student like myself, saw a hope. And soon the party promoted us into the party system, trying to get us to change the party by the open-minded leader at that time, Hu Yaobang. As a party official, I found my uh, daily work is to watch my fellow students, my teachers, and report on them, and try to help the government to brainwash them. And I decided to leave China to come to the United States for higher education. And three years later, student movement broke out, which was triggered by the death of the open-minded leader I just mentioned. And I saw hope again because so many people stood up to the government corruption, stood up for freedom and democracy that we demanded. And I decided to go back to Beijing about a month after the movement began. I joined the movement and got together with Liu Xiaobo, whose passing we are still mourning at this moment. I did almost everything in the protest and uh, I witnessed the massacre. Four tanks running over students, just a few, uh, few feet away. So from that moment, I knew I would not give up. I will devote my life to change China, to do everything possible to prevent such a tragedy from happening again in China. 2002, I went back to China, trying to help the labor movement with nonviolent struggle strategies, got uh, arrested and uh, sentenced to five years in prison. With the help of my dear friend, Jared Ganser, he mobilized the whole world on my behalf. Your late uh, father, Congressman Lentos, you know, he spearheaded congressional effort to save me. So my fate would not be better than Liu Xiaobo's, simply because, you know, people like you, now I'm a free man. Because I'm free, I think I have a responsibility to do more, to do everything possible to help our fellow prisoners of conscience, to do everything possible to help China change. I want to pick up on on something you were saying, Jean Li, which is how unbelievably important it is that when somebody is in the hands, at the mercy of an abusive regime like the Chinese regime, that there be active mobilization to try and raise the profile of their case. Can you both talk a little bit about why that is so important and why quiet diplomacy and behind-the-scenes efforts is not enough. Why it matters that somebody's cause get on the world's radar screen. Oftentimes, the families of dissidents get bad advice that keeping quiet is the way that things can be worked out with dictators. And in my experience, while one has to consider the facts and circumstances of any individual case, practically speaking, dictators only understand one emotion, which is fear fear of justice, fear of loss of power, fear of accountability. And it's only by highlighting the situation of dissidents and what they're going through that there are potential consequences for a person being disappeared or tortured or even killed. So although every case is different, and as a human rights lawyer, I'm not always going to advocate for public 
and aggressive public engagement um, because there are times when private diplomacy is the right way forward. Practically speaking, my experience has been that invariably shining a bright light on what's going on and telling the story, having the facts fully accurate and detailed combined with political and public relations pressure and support from the UN and from civil society groups, you know, this is the way to hold any government to account for what is happening in a particular case. And even in uh, the most difficult of cases, they provide a measure of support uh, and solidarity. The other thing that's so important about this is that when family members or counsel are able to visit political prisoners, prisoners of conscience, that knowing that the outside world is engaged, knowing that they are on the side of truth and of justice, having that the international community stand in solidarity with them against the autocratic regime uh, that they're being imprisoned by is enormously important to maintain the morale of political prisoners and their families to know that the world has not forgotten them. I think that's probably the most important thing that any political prisoner needs is to know that they have not been forgotten. Yes, I uh, totally agree with uh, my friend Jerry's answer, and I can speak uh, from my personal experience. When I first got to prison, I was kept in solitary confinement. During the time, nobody knew my whereabouts. I was there by myself without any outside information, no any people to talk to except my interrogators, and I thought I would stay there for the rest of my life. I could not help think the worst, like my family had already abandoned me, my friends had already forgotten me, until one day my uh, lawyer came to visit me. When the guards knocked at my cell door, I thought it would be another interrogation, but it turns out to be a visit, and he told me the garment allowed him to come to see me only with the pressure generated from the international community and with the outpouring support from the U.S., from other democracies. Only with this pressure did the government agree to let my lawyer to come to visit me in prison. That visit was a turning point for me. I was revived. I knew I was not forgotten. I was not abandoned. I was not alone. So many people are behind me. I got so encouraged to stand up, even in prison cell, to defend my right and that of others. And with that morale, I can continue. Now, we're talking just a few days after the tragic death of Liu Xiaobo, the Nobel Peace Prize winner who passed away on July 13th. And you have both pointed out that he is the first Nobel laureate to die in state custody since the German pacifist Karl von Ostieski died at the hands of the Nazis back in 1938. And Jean-Li, you had some very powerful, very hard-hitting testimony before the House Foreign Affairs Committee just a few days ago where you testified that you believe the Chinese government deliberately chose not to treat Liu Xiaobo's cancer earlier. And you also refer to what you call the political, not the medical decision, not to disclose his cancer and to deny him a timely medical parole. And you termed this a disguised death sentence. I'd like to sort of ask 
both of you in turn to talk about what this pattern of conduct reveals about the nature of the Chinese regime. Sure. I mean, I think that it is extraordinary that the Chinese government is afraid of one man and his ideas. It's not just afraid of Liu Xiaobo and his particular ideas, but of so many of its own people. The fact is that the Chinese government is spending more annually on its domestic security budget, some $140 billion a year, than it is on their national security budget and on the People's Liberation Army. And Wait, I think they're that, spending more on domestic security, defending themselves against their own people. citizens' free thinking than they yes. are on their external security. Yes. And I think that that says a lot about where they see the threat coming from. The reason why the Chinese government is so afraid of its own people is because this one-party system and the economic prosperity that is generated in China, lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty, has not been evenly experienced by the Chinese public, but in fact has been substantially experienced by members of the Chinese Communist Party and the elites uh, in the country that have better access to education, better access to making business deals, and a stronger ability to engage globally. The fact that China has more billionaires today than any other country on earth is a good illustration of that phenomenon. You know, the reason why Liu Xiaobo was so threatening is because he had long advocated for a transition from a one-party system to a multi-party democracy. Previously, a lot of dissidents had advocated for overthrowing the system, but for people who saw their incomes go from a dollar a day to two dollars a day to four dollars a day, their existences were getting better year on year. So you don't want to get rid of a system that's making you do better. But then when you start to look around and you realize that, you know, your mayor is living in a beautiful house and you're in a small little hut and that corruption is not punished in any way, even if it's brazen, then what you've seen in China and we've seen in recent years is hundreds of thousands of protests annually on bread and butter issues, not on necessarily political voice, but on environmental degradation without thought to consequences. The privatization of state-run industries and people being laid off after spending decades working for the government with no pension. Right? These are the things that are really upsetting people in China. And with Liu Xiaobo and Yang Zhenli and so many others in Charter 08, but also more broadly have been saying is we don't want to tear down the system because, yes, it has brought a lot of prosperity, but people should be able to both see their livelihoods increasing and have a voice in how government resources are being expended and that they need to be expended more fairly. And there needs to be accountability for a one-party system, which has extraordinary inefficiencies built into it that allow for such widespread and gross corruption. I mean, millions of Chinese Communist Party members have been disciplined for corruption. And I'm sure that that's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what's going on, because there is only a one-party system. And so... This is why Liu, uh, Liu Xiaobo is so feared by Xi Jinping and by the Chinese Communist Party. But the critical news to emphasize is that he is but one man. The Chinese government can kill one man. They can't kill an idea. And as much as they try hard to maintain their grip on power by repressing their population with domestic security and, and arbitrary detentions and torture and extrajudicial killings, the more that they try to you know, maintain their grip on power by trying to censor everything that's appearing on the internet behind the great Chinese firewall. I mean, right now, Liu Xiaobo's name, if you type it into Chinese language search engines in China, it automatically disappears. They're trying to erase his existence. The harder that they hold on to their power, the less capable of it that they are to secure that power. And so 
I think that the way that they treated Liu Xiaobo, especially in his remaining months of life, will come back to egregiously haunt the Chinese government because they draw they drew enormous attention to him and his ideas. Adults are very much like children, right? If, if as an adult you're told you can't do something, the first thing you want to do is understand why you can't do it. So the Chinese government is saying to the Chinese people, this guy's writings, they're very dangerous. You can't read them. And what is that going to do? That will embolden the next generation of human rights defenders and political dissidents that Yang Chunli works with every single day to take up the mantle, even if Liu Xiaobo's light from a, a personal standpoint has been extinguished. Li, one of the things that I find most frustrating and troubling as somebody who lives in the West is the degree to which so much of the world, certainly including the United States, seems so willing to appease the Chinese government to overlook, to downplay its outrageous human rights abuses. We saw this immediately following the death of Liu Xiaobo, where both President Trump and the new president of France, Emmanuel Macron, neglected to mention Liu Xiaobo when a question came up at their press conference about China. Why are we so willing to give a pass to a country that really, both in terms of the extent and the scale of its repression, is a world-class human rights abuser. So it is a sad fact that many leaders of a free world are less willing to stand up with oppressed people around the world for their rights. When it comes to Liu Xiaobo's case, you know, there are a lot of disappointment about uh, the world leaders' uh, performance you know, I don't think they give uh, enough moral support, let alone the real physical support to get him out to live and die as a free man. And with the rising economic power, they think, you know, they need China. This is a very short-sighted vision. Just because of this appeasement policy, the democratic way life here and the security of the free people have been affected. We all understand U.S. and other democracies are built on universal values because these values are universal. They must be applied and should be applied to the people in China. Those around the world who uphold the universal values, if the people like Liu Xiaobo who uphold the value and interest of the country like the United States. He had such a tragic passing, and we carelessly not respond. You know, that says a lot. We have to ask the questions, what kind of a government would refuse the final wish of uh, such peaceful kind of man as Liu Xiaobo to die as a free man? What kind of a government would not allow last moment for Liu Xiaobo to be with his beloved wife without a surveillance. So this is a morally bankrupt, a totally yes. morally bankrupt regime. Dealing with this kind of regime, you must first have moral clarity. You just cannot look the other way when such human rights tragedies take place. There are a lot of talk nowadays in the world engaged with China. Yes, of course. We cannot avoid engaging with China, but we must engage, confront this brutal face of this regime. Otherwise, the values, the security, 
the long-term interest of people of this country will be eventually in jeopardy. You said, Jared, and I agree with you that this shocking and despicable way in which the Chinese government dealt with Yu Xiaobo will have the ironic effect of bringing more attention to his cause, to his writings, to his legacy. But in the short term, do you think the Chinese government is likely to crack down further? What is likely to be the immediate aftermath and the implications for other democracy activists in China of all of this international attention and criticism of what happened with Liu Xiaobo? I don't think that it's going to be easy to figure that out until we see some time go on. I mean, my focus right now, along with Yang Zhenli's, is very much on rescuing Jia as rapidly as possible. The Chinese government has proven itself to be totally and unequivocally unrelenting when it comes to persecuting low and high-profile dissidents and their families. They're, they have no hesitation to punish the families of dissidents. In Liu Xia's case, she spent almost seven years under house arrest without charge or trial. This the is government. Liu Xiaobo's widow you're talking about. Can you exactly. talk a little bit about her situation? Because you are her lawyer, Jared. What tools do you have at your disposal? What can others do to try and leverage the tools that you're wielding on her behalf? What needs to happen for her to be freed? Well, I think it's going to be a heavy lift and a big challenge, but one in which the world cannot afford to fail. The reality is that she's been under house arrest without charge for almost seven years. She suffered severe depression, had a heart attack, was isolated from her family, her friends, uh, over an extraordinary period of time. The Chinese government has claimed this entire time that she's been under, quote, no legal restriction. That was actually technically an accurate description because what was happening to her was illegal, not legal. Now the Chinese government claims after the funeral that she's, quote, free, which is obviously not the case. I was able to be in touch with her previously. I'm now not able to be in touch with her, and I can't reach her, nor could she reach anybody else. So my view is that when the Chinese government so brazenly and publicly has been and continues to persecute a woman for merely the crime of having married a great man, that this is just something that can't be tolerated in the 21st century. And with the death of Liu Xiaobo, and now no justification of any kind being available to the Chinese government, and when they've repeatedly claimed that she is free or not under legal restriction, there can be no good justification to allow her detention to continue. And the world absolutely needs to hold China to account immediately at the highest levels of government. President Trump, Chancellor Merkel, Prime Minister May of the UK, President Macron of France, those four leaders in particular need to put enormous pressure on China to get Liu shot out. And I think that if they do so, that we will get her out and that she will be free to live out the remainder of her days in the peace and tranquility that she obviously richly deserves for all that she and her family have suffered. My view is that if we allow China to continue to detain Liu Xia, that her case is a bellwether for the way that human rights goes in China across the board. It's symbolic of the impunity with which the Chinese government can treat high-profile dissidents and their families. Now there can be no justification for not letting her out. Her only reason to remain in China was her husband. And now that he has passed away, uh, there's no reason for her to remain there. So the world cannot allow the Chinese government to publicly claim that this woman is free and continue to hold her under house arrest with complete impunity and with no and with no consequence. If we do that, then that is a license to Xi Jinping to crack down on all domestic dissent, knowing that the world will not speak up for anyone. Because if we won't speak up for a woman that is free, 
then why would we speak up for somebody we know to be detained? Despite the Chinese government's insistence that she is free, the fact is she is not free. She continued to be under house arrest. It's almost seven years. So we have to come together with unified message, sufficient pressure to let her leave China for a country of her choosing. I wonder whether you believe, Jean Li, that China is weaker on the inside than it appears to most people from the outside. I think most of us look at China and we say the regime is completely stable, completely in control, and this is a powerful country where there's you know no opportunity for change. Then Jared says, which is fascinating, that they spend more money on domestic protection and security than they do on their external security. What do you believe? What do your friends and associates still in China tell you about the real state of stability of the Chinese regime? The Chinese Communist regime has taken pains to show the whole world it is strong and not afraid of Liu Xiaobo, but its actions have suggested otherwise. They show their weakness. They are so afraid of a peaceful kind of man such as Liu Xiaobo, his legacy. Because when we talk about Liu Xiaobo, we cannot avoid talking about Liu Xiaobo's Chinese dream. I think the leaders of China are afraid of the inevitable comparison of Liu Xiaobo's Chinese dream and Xi Jinping's. We are afraid of the message. When there is a viable democracy movement and with the international support, this regime will collapse. Upon its collapse, we will build a democracy in China. When Liu Xiaobo passed away, he was very quickly cremated and his ashes dispersed somewhere so that there would be no place where he was buried that people could come to and sort of revere his memory and that it could become an organizing gathering place. Is that, are those reports accurate? Accurate. This is just another example to show how weak the regime is. They are afraid of ashes. Right after the passing of Liu Xiaobo, they arranged everything so quickly to get him cremated, to have Liu Xiaobo sea buried. Oh, at sea. As I said, at the Victims of Communist Memorial Park for Liu Xiaobo's uh, memorial, I said in my eulogy, the regime of China wanted to bury Liu Xiaobo, to bury him, trying to make him disappear altogether, but failed to understand Liu Xiaobo is a seed. Where you bury him, there he grows. Hmm. He's everywhere. I want to end up by asking you each, if you would, to think and reflect for me a little bit about something in your work, your many years of activism, that feels to you like a truly meaningful victory because you know we all know that in the field of human rights you said earlier Jared getting Lucia out will be a heavy lift there are a lot of heavy lifts we all were praying that Liu Xiaobo would be able to have his last days as a free man with his wife and we don't always get that immediate goal that we are working and striving towards and that can be disheartening but 
If you could each share something from your years of work where you felt like we got the victory this time. You know, one has to measure victories in small and large ways. I mean, I've worked on, for example, issues relating to Burma human rights, going back to the beginning of my time even being trained to be a human rights lawyer. And I've worked on issues relating to Burma almost uh, 17 years now. Over the course of that time, I was able to secure the release of a number of lower profile political prisoners. And of course, spent five years as Aung San Suu Kyi's international counsel. When I first got involved in the situation in Burma, there were 1,200 political prisoners in the country. That number swelled over the course of my work on Burma to 2,400. Ultimately, Aung San Suu Kyi was freed with the results of my efforts and that of many other people. And an extraordinary transition has happened in Burma, where while Aung San Suu Kyi herself can't be the president of the country because the constitution excludes her personally from being president, she is now running the country. And there are enormous challenges in Burma of a wide variety, most notably, of course, the persecution of the Rohingya Muslim minority. There remain a couple dozen political prisoners in the country as well, because Aung San Suu Kyi doesn't actually control the military, which controls the police and the prison system. But what we've seen in Burma is a dramatic transformation. And the situation in Burma is, you know, to say better is uh, not giving sufficient credit to the word better. I mean, crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing was underway against the ethnic minorities of the country in widespread, systematic and horrific ways. We had at the height of my work on Burma, 70,000 child soldiers, uh, more than a million refugees and IDPs, 600,000 internally displaced persons, widespread political prisoners, torture, extrajudicial killing, and much of that has receded. So I guess what I would say is that, you know, Martin Luther King said that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice. I think that that's a good way for us to conclude this discussion. But uh, I found that to be the case. And for all of the disappointments of which um, top of my career as a human rights lawyer, the death of Liu Xiaobo is, uh, is and will remain one of the worst days of my career as a human rights lawyer. I have seen extraordinary victories where political dissidents like Yang Zhang Li persevere and are released from prison and are able to then re return to their important work. And so no doubt there are enormous challenges all over the world, small and large, that need to be addressed. But I firmly believe that with the courage and the perseverance, particularly of those on the ground in countries that are dictatorship, not being willing to accept the status quo and despite the great and grave personal risks that they face, being willing to stand up to those dictatorships. That is what inspires me every day to keep doing the work that I'm doing. These dictators don't understand because they're only motivated by self-interest and by greed and by enriching themselves that they can kill one person, they can 10 people, they can kill 100 people, 1,000 or more, but that is not going to dissuade the human spirit from seeking freedom and from wanting acknowledgement for the human dignity that God places in all of us uh, as human beings that are all interconnected despite our backgrounds, our histories, our religions, our cultures, and otherwise. So I'm an eternal optimist. I guess you have to be to be a human rights lawyer. I mean, Katrina, you, you've had yourself an extraordinary career as a human rights advocate in so many different contexts over so many years and are a real inspiration to me as well. Your dad was a hero of mine and remains a hero of mine in my career. And I had the pleasure in the latter years of his life to work with him on Capitol Hill and a lot of these kinds of human rights cases and causes, including on Yang Zhenli's case, where we did a very memorable press conference with him, with you know, Yang Zhenli's wife uh, and a number of other members of Congress, Republican and Democrat. So uh, I feel very blessed 
as a human rights lawyer, that as dark a day as it was when, when it was announced that Liu Xiaobo had passed away, I knew that they could extinguish his life, but I felt good that at least his soul was now free to demonstrate that, um, that the Chinese government isn't just afraid of the living, but they're even afraid of the dead to see how they treated, you know, the rush to cremation and burial at sea. I mean, all of that just reinforces that we're on the right side of history and that they're on the losing side. Yep, it's very difficult for us to claim victory over Liu Xiaobo's case on the surface. But Liu Xiaobo's tragedy is just a representative of tragedies of the prison of conscience, the dissidents in China. China is particularly difficult, but human rights work is difficult. As a human rights advocate, we all understand what I'm saying. Just a couple of years ago, when I was in uh, Geneva, a high school student came to talk to me. She told me she wanted to do human rights work. Then I told her, are you ready? To do human rights work, I warned her, you must be very strong, perseverant, and patient. But those who do human rights work are impatient people. We are impatient because we are impatient with the injustice. But we have to be patient at the same time. To save one person, one prison of conscience may take a few years, sometimes a few decades. In Liu Xiaobo's case, we were not able to do it. But as Jared said, one thing we all sure we are on the right side. We are on the right side of history. So many people inside China either travel long distance to United States to see me or call, make phone call to me, email to me to express their feelings about Liu Xiaobo's tragic death. Those people are not dissidents, are not, you know, those who have been working day in, day out with us for a change in China. These people are not just freedom fighters. They are just normal people from all walks of life. So Liu Xiaobo's death inspired them. They come to me with one message that they want to do more. They want to do more in the future. Liu Xiaobo's memory is a blessing, is a source of inspiration for so many people to continue the fight. I don't think the regime can last very long. So we need more people to join, to do the work necessary to change the system, to realize Liu Xiaobo's dream. Indeed, that's the common dream of the people of China. I feel incredibly privileged to have worked with both Jared and Jean Li through the Lantos Foundation. I thank them for being with us on this episode of The Keeper, and I hope to continue working with them in the future. After my initial interview with Jared Genser, we had the opportunity for a further conversation about the recent troubling events in Burma related to the Rohingya Muslim minority. Jared shared the following observations about this tragic situation and the response from Aung San Suu Kyi. He said, Criticism of Aung San Suu Kyi is unsurprising and it has been deserved, both because she has been insufficiently sensitive to this tragedy and insufficiently engaged in pressing the military to cease and desist in their operations against Rohingya civilians, operations which the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has described as, quote, a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. Aung San Suu Kyi's response has been very disappointing, but... 
we have to remember that the culprit in this terrible situation is the Burmese military, which is a power unto itself. In Burma, there is no civilian control over the military, such as we have under the U.S. Constitution. It is the Burmese military, under the direction of its commander-in-chief, Min Aung Hlaing, which has used the pretext of fighting militants to launch this brutal assault on hundreds of thousands of innocent Rohingya civilians. General Min Aung Hlaing should be held fully responsible by the international community for this campaign of ethnic cleansing, and he should be the primary focus of our outrage. As we sign off, I'd like to quote the ancient Chinese philosopher and teacher Confucius, who had a word of warning for today's leaders. He said, Failure to cultivate moral power, failure to explore what one has learned, an incapacity to stand by what one knows to be right, an incapacity to reform what is not good. These are the things that should worry us. This episode of The Keeper was produced and recorded by the Lantos Foundation for Human Rights and Justice. To support our work and for more information on today's guests and topic, visit us at www.lantosfoundation.org.